The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the 300 Colin Shobogenzo, Zhui Feng's rice field, the main case. One day, Master Zhui Feng said to the assembly, what we're talking about is like a rice field. It's dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. Don't miss receiving this gift. Zhuangzi said, then what is the rice field itself? Zhui Feng said, look. Zhuangzi said, Although what you say is correct, I wouldn't say it that way. Zhuifeng said, then how would you say it? Zhuangzi said, one by one, each and every person. Daroshi's commentary. Those lost in the mundane seek solace in the sacred. This is because they've not yet, as yet, understood the sacred matter of ordinary household activity. The wholehearted practice of the way simply has no edges. It's because the truth of life is beyond existence and non-existence that there is plowing the fields, planting the seeds, and thus a rice field. Indeed, it is because of this gift of activity that one's own self has come into being. The verse. The buildings and grounds protect the Dharma and bring peace to all. The Sangha in the Ten Directions grows in wisdom and compassion. How this comes to us is a gift we should not miss. <clears throat> so some of you may recognize this. <laughs> uh, so last weekend we ended our session with Shusoho Sen ending our Ango, and the chief disciple, who is not here today on vacation, gave this talk, gave a talk on this koan. And um, as she was working on it during the week, and I was working on it as well, and with her, I realized how much I liked this koan and just couldn't resist um, <laughs> uh, adding my own bit to it. I actually hadn't remembered giving a talk on this, but when I looked at my notes. I've given two previous talks on this, but some years ago. So, and we're also ending an introductory retreat this weekend. So the koan, as here is presented a, a traditional koan, is, in a sense, if we look at it broadly, is how do we experience a fundamental truth that is not the creation, is not the result of anyone's efforts, is not the result of anyone's ideas, is unconditioned. The Buddha realized that if to encounter, to, to be free, of all that is conditioned in our life, because all of that comes apart, then we have to make contact, direct contact with something that is unconditioned, that is not the result of any action. Because otherwise, if we rely on something that is conditioned, that is com a composite reality, it's impermanent. So we can't really rely on that, not for something fundamental. And so that was the Buddha's enlightenment, was encountering that which is beyond concepts and senses, beyond normal perception, and yet is not apart from ordinary consciousness, because if it were, then 
we would have no part of it. And so this, uh, in a way, is what the Buddha encountered at, at his own enlightenment. It was how was he going to teach using words and language and ideas and concepts, something that fundamentally has to be free of all of that. And so in our tradition, the, the important teaching of Buddha nature, that we have this fundamentally intact, complete, undivided, perfect nature. We call Buddha nature. It's an enlightened nature. We possess all the qualities of an enlightened being, but we're also deluded. And we have many attachments, and we have many habit patterns I spoke about yesterday to those of you in the retreat. And so we have to find ways to untie that knot so that Buddha nature can be revealed to us and that we can live in that. So Buddha nature is your complete nature, but you cannot possess it. It is utterly you, but you're not it. Zhui Feng, uh, Taiko talked a little bit about these two teachers. I'll say a little bit more. Zhui Feng, uh, both um, ninth century Chinese masters, Chan masters. And one day, a student asked Master Zhui Feng, when you studied at Deshan's place, which was his teacher, what did you attain that allowed you to stop seeking further? And Zhui Feng said, I went with empty hands, and I returned with empty hands. In essence, he didn't gain anything. He didn't receive anything from his teacher. That's what liberated him. That's what the, the experience of that, the truth of that, allowed him to stop seeking further. So all weekend we've been practicing and offering teachings about these different forms of training, zazen and liturgy and the precepts and study and work and practice and art and body practice and so on, all of which are expressly purposed to help us to untie that knot, to free ourselves of what essentially does not bind us in essence, but in our experience, our everyday experience does. Zhui Feng had a student, Zhuangxia, and they're sort of renowned for being an extremely close student and teacher. Um, Zhuangxia was younger, so he's kind of like a younger brother, but they were very close in the Dharma. And a student, when Zhuangxia himself became a teacher, a student asked him once, what is this, this Dharma that we're trying to realize, and why is it so hard to realize? Zhuangxia said, because it is so close because it is so close. You know, if he said, well, it's just over that hill, we would know all about that. We'd know how to pursue something over that hill across the country on the other side of the world. We know about traveling, looking for something out there. But he said, because it's so close, it is so difficult. And so whatever it is that we're seeking, whatever we think is going to deliver us or resolve us or save us, Zwancha is saying, we will never find it out there. And so Zhui Feng says, it, what we're talking about is a rice field. What we're talking about. It's as though his mind is always within the Dharma, always on the teachings, always seeing the teachings manifest in every moment, every experience, that there's never a moment apart from that. And so it's natural 
to just suddenly say, what we've been talking about, what we've been studying, is like a rice field, because it's so close. Tanarushi says, it's de- uh, he goes on to say, it's dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. Do not miss receiving this gift. And so the simile of a field, of a garden, is very old and very widely used in Buddhism. And it's a good comparison that there's a field. <clears throat> it has a lot of potential, right? It has the stuff that is needed, but it needs to be cultivated. And so it has to be plowed, have to clear out the rocks and the weeds. We have to dig furrows. We have to plant the seeds. The seeds have to be good seeds, right? Because whatever seeds we plant are, is the crop we're going to harvest, right? So we have to be sure that these are good seeds that we're planting. And then we have to tend to them, make sure they have enough water and sunlight and warmth and nourishment. And then they sprout. Right? From that seed, they sprout. And then if we continue to nourish that sprout, which is very fragile in the beginning, very vulnerable, right? It's got all the potential of life, but it's still very vulnerable. It's fragile. So we can't just walk away. We have to t- keep tending to it, keep tending to it. And then it grows, and it grows stronger. And it becomes more vigorous. And then it bears fruit. It's a nice simile. And it's helpful because it does nicely describe the path up to a point. As every simile, every metaphor, every comparison ultimately has to end at some point. Dadaroshi, in fact, says, actually, it's not like anything. When Zhui Feng said, what we've been talking about is like a rice field, Dadaroshi said, actually, in the end, it's not like anything. And so one of the things that is so important for us to see is our strong proclivity to objectify, to solidify. I mean, that's just the basic machinery of what we call delusion, is that we see things as things, whether they're internal things, sensations, emotions, thoughts, whether they're external things, small or large, and they appear like something, right? It has its own quality, its own characteristics. We give names to them so we can keep them separate and put them into categories. And, and they all, all of that working together, and then our history with it, our association, everybody else seems to be in agreement. Yeah, there are all these things in the world. It just seems obvious that things exist as things, self-existing, apart, not me. And so, as a practitioner, we need to be ever on the alert to that propensity to objectify things that we're experiencing, particularly in practice, in the very same moment or soon thereafter that we actually have some experience or insider realization that is actually empty of anything we can objectify. That propensity is so strong, it keeps happening. So even this weekend, having experiences that might, perhaps, hopefully, maybe you had some good experiences, maybe something powerful, something that gave you some insight, something that you experienced within yourself, and then the tendency to start thinking about, okay, how am I going to tell my friends about this? 
I'm going to describe this. Oh, yeah, I can, yeah, that, yeah, it's good. It'll be a good story, right? And so it's like becoming something that it's not. And it's not that we should never, you know, share. That's not what I'm saying. But just to be aware of that way the mind works, to take something that's alive, that's a real, that's alive in one moment, and in the next moment it's past, and now it's a memory. And so we have those memories. And so how we hold them, how we understand them, know that it's a memory, it's not the thing. And so this koan, in a way, is very easy to understand. It's like a rice field, dependent upon people plowing and planting seeds. Don't miss this gift. Yeah, it's, it's a field. It has the potential to feed the hungry and to give nourishment. Wonderful. Let's not miss that gift. And that's true, but this koan is really working at a different point, a different level. I talked yesterday a little bit about the two truths of relative and absolute. And the koans and so much of the teachings are a really good example of how using relative terms, examples, images that we're familiar with, similes that we can relate to and they can be very helpful, and at the same time be talking at another level, at the same time be pointing to something much deeper. This rice field depends upon the people planting and flowering. And, 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 and planting seeds. So one of the Buddha's, maybe arguably one of the Buddha's most profound enlightenments, teachings, was dependent origination, dependent arising. Nagarjuna says, when this is, that comes into being. When this arises, that arises. When this is not, that does not come to be. When this does not arise, that does not arise. And that can sound kind of obscure, right, and very philosophical, but in a, in, a, in a very pithy way, it expresses this most profound teaching of the Buddha, which has the most profound implications for everything. For everything. Because he's really talking about how do things come to be? How does all this happening if the way that it seems to be happening is leading over and over and over again in generation after generation from household to household, person to person, to various forms of dukkha, of suffering, of unhappiness, is that because that's just the way it is? We're stuck with it, do the best you can? Or is that because there's something about the way things are working that we don't understand? Bill Waldron about this says, a Buddhist scholar and practitioner and friend of monastery says, things arise due to conditions upon which they depend, both in terms of perception and the physical practical realities and the patterns of interaction out of which they arise. So condition in Buddhism doesn't just mean the state of things. It means things that arise that in, in a mutual relationship with each other the things do nothing exists in the world that just appears on its own, not in relationship with anything else, having no causal uh, consequence, that it be not being any causal, causal consequence of any previous action, that something just is in and of itself autonomously. If we analyze, if we sort of look at that, you don't have to look too hard to realize 
that there's nothing in the world that could be like that, because that means that thing would be have to, by definition, be completely unaffected by everything. Nothing could affect it, because nothing could make it change. Because to change means to be affected by things, internally or externally. To be in a state of flux, to be impermanent. And so to be to be for things to be when the Buddha said all conditioned things are dukkha, what he was saying was everything that appears internally or externally as a result of other influences all has the potential to lead to attachment and suffering, which pretty much includes everything. And so this has such profound implications in terms of, well, as I said, everything. And it's, it's not necessarily an easy teaching to understand. So it, for practitioners, it's something that we should study and wrestle with and then put down and then come back and study it again and wrestle with it and then put it down and then come back and study and then maybe don't put it down. <laughs> Analayo, a Buddhist, another Buddhist scholar and monk, said, the operation of dependent co-arising is not confined to a strictly linear sequence of events. It's not linear. Rather, dependent co-arising stands for the conditional interrelation of phenomena, how things relate to each other, constituting a web of interwoven events in which each event is related to other events by means of cause and effect. So if you take any situation, like we're sitting here in this hall this morning, the only reason that's possible is because of certain actions that we have taken. And where would you find the first cause, the first action? Could you actually locate that? Right. You know, it's like in the first moment when we encountered Buddhism or, or began thinking about searching for a spiritual practice. Was that the beginning? Did it just spontaneously appear in that moment? Well, no. That moment was a result of other previous actions. And so in every moment, all of those causal actions, in, in a Buddhist sense, are bearing fruit in our being here now. But being here now is also dependent upon all of the conditions that are necessary for us just to be sitting upright, to be alive, to have life, to have been able to be here, right? to be able to leave home to be able to be in this hall that has been here since 1980, all of, and that was there before 1980. So you think about all of the conditions, and that each of those conditions that is necessary is based on other conditions that were necessary for that condition to, to be present. And then those conditions are also dependent upon their own set of conditions and causes. So you see, when he talks about a a web of interwoven events, it's a big web. And he says, each conditioning factor is at the same time itself conditioned. It's like when I get angry, right, which is a conditioned emotion, a conditioned experience, right, based on past actions, past moments of anger, and the conditions of this moment, internally and whatever is, seems to be causing that anger, <clears throat> and I speak out of that anger, right? 
So now that anger, which is conditioned, is conditioning you when I inflict my anger on you, but it's also conditioning me because I'm hearing it and I'm angry, right? So it's moving in all directions at the same moment. And he says then something very important. He says, within these interwoven patterns, so how are we going to get handle on all this, right? <laughs> like, what does this mean in terms of how do we practice and not just get overwhelmed by this interwoven web? He says, within these interwoven patterns, the centrally important specific condition from the viewpoint of subjective experience, you, is your volition, your intention. So he's saying the most important factor within this vast web, this infinite web that we will never, unless we're completely enlightened, right, know the full extent of, the most important factor which we can actually know something about is volition. And then he, he, he makes that clear. He says, it is the mental volition of the present moment that decisively influences future activities and events. It's my present intention that has a decisive influence, an unambiguous influence, is changing things, both in the present and the future. Volition itself is under the influence of other conditions, right? So the intention that I have in this moment didn't just come out of nowhere, right? It itself is the result of causing conditions. And he says, such as one's habits, character traits, past experiences, all of these and more influence the way we experience a particular situation. Nevertheless, inasmuch as each volition involves a decision between alternatives, right? We all decided to be here this morning and not somewhere else. There are alternative decisions. One, and, and so in, in, this, in the... Recognizing that, one's volitional decision in the present moment is to a considerable degree amenable to personal intervention and control. In other words, that's like a, a, a direct entryway into a place where we can change things. Where we, ha we begin to recognize how much ability we have, we've always been having, to create change, but not always in the right direction. To influence ourselves and others, but not always in the best way. And to affect the world. He's saying this is our point of entry, a key point of entry. Each decision in turn shapes the habits, character traits, experiences, and perceptual mechanisms that form the context of future decisions. So if I'm learning how to practice, I want to practice, I'm learning how to meditate, and I decide I'm going to sit in the morning when I get up. Right? So that's, I establish that as an intention. Good. Ring. I have to now establish that intention again. I have to actually live that intention. I have to get up and go to my meditation seat. Right? And in doing that today, I'm influencing the habits, the character traits, experiences, associations, and so on, of that. And so then the next day, if I do the same thing, it gets a little stronger. 
We can't measure it, right? But it gets a little stronger. And that's how we cultivate an, or transform an intention into something that becomes integrated, right? And, and to the point where you're, in a sense, living that intention. You don't have to sort of think about it so much anymore. You don't have to, you don't get lost from it so much. You can find your way back. And all of this, as he's speaking about, is as a result of how things work. They work in this interrelatedness between everything. Wendell Berry, one of my mentors, said, the context for everything is everything. This idea, this dualistic idea that we can isolate and categorize and section things off. We can do that just to study them, right? To gain more familiarity to, you know, to in skillful ways, but to understand that what we're doing is we're it's it's kind of a you know, it's a contrivance. But if this is true and if this is, you know, our very nature, and this is the way things work, and, and everything in the world seems to kind of get it and live in accord with it. Like, what's up with us as human beings, right? I mean, we're pretty smart. We certainly think we're very smart, <laughs> right? So, like, what memo did we not get, right? Why is it, does it seem so much easier to fall into deluded states than it does to... to to enlighten ourselves. Why is it so easy to hook people in anger and hatred and divisiveness? It doesn't take much. A student once asked Master Zhui Feng, what is it when one is solitary and independent? Zhui Feng said, still sick. Still sick. I think of the Surgeon General's Describing loneliness as one of our most important epidemics. Solitary and independent. This solitary that he's speaking about here in this, in this uh, question to Shui Feng is not the solitariness of solitude, but the solitariness of isolation, being cut off, separated. And we know that just as human beings, like that's, not a good thing, right? We're social beings. We need each other. We've always lived that way. We depend upon each other in, in every way. And not just because it's practical. It's how we're built. And so when we create causing conditions that are designed to isolate us, that's trouble. And the consequences of that will play out. Because these are sort of natural laws, we might say. You know, it's like I could say, I don't, I don't believe in gravity. Okay, but, you know, jump out of a tree and see who wins. <laughs> right? And so when we don't live in accord with our actual nature and the way the world actually works, how could we expect that's going to work out well? When this is, that comes to be. When we cultivate the seeds of being isolated and separate and distinct, loneliness comes to be. We shouldn't be surprised. And, and of course, 
one of the reasons this is so essential is if we want to shift things, then we study those conditions that are making it easy for those results that we do not want to appear. So then we trace it back. So then what are the conditions we need to change? And the Buddha said, you have to start in the center of the universe, which is you, with your thoughts, your words, your actions, your intention, your volition, your everything. That's where we have to go. And we have to become schooled, if you will, learned, adept, at being a human being, a whole human being, which means everything that we know and can perceive and then everything that we cannot touch. And so that's why in Buddhism, wisdom and compassion are inextricably bound together. They cannot be separated. We speak of them, we have words for each of them, but they have to work together. So if we want to cultivate wisdom, we have to be cultivating compassion. If we want to truly be compassionate, then we have to be enlightening ourselves. And so, maybe surprisingly, maybe not, to discover this profound mutual dependence that we have to everything, including each other, to realize that there is nothing ultimately that stands alone and isolated. We, have to, we turn deeply into the solitude of this one, of this one, and let go of all of those concerns and all of those people and all those situations and all those relationships, not because they don't matter, but so that we can have moments when we are truly in solitude and the mind becomes so clear we can actually see in a penetrating way this mind, how things work, and understand this that is appearing in this moment, its actual nature, so we don't get hooked by it, deceived by it, caught in it. And so he says it's dependent upon the people planting, plowing. We should not miss receiving this gift, how all of this is coming into being. And Zhuangzi says, well, what is this rice field? And Zhuifeng says, look. Tadaroshi says, he has taken in everything. You know, it's kind of like when you're walking down the street, <clears throat> just minding your own business, thinking about something, not thinking about something, and a car backfires, boom! And in that moment, before a thought appears, before any, there's any recognition, before there's any identifying what just happened, everything is taken in. There's nothing other than that. And in that same moment, in order for everything to be taken in, everything has to be released. What you were thinking about yesterday, the day before, the moment before, can't be found. And so there are such unexpected moments. Shui Feng says, look. But then what happens is before we know it, we identify it, oh, that was a car. <sighs> My heart is beating. Calms down, I keep walking, I return back to what I was thinking about, it's over. And we don't actually see what we just saw. We don't actually understand what we just experienced. 
In Buddhist terms, that means it wasn't realized. And Zhuangzi says, well, what you say is correct. When Zhui Feng says, look. And it's not what he said that's important here. It's look. But Zhuangzi says, but I wouldn't say it that way. And Zhui Feng says, well, how would you say it? So is Zhui Feng wrong? He's Zhuangzi's teacher. Is his response somehow incomplete or lacking? Zhuangzi just says, I would just say it another way. Because nothing is fixed, because all things are non-dual, there are a hundred ways, a thousand ways it could be said, it could be expressed. In koan training, that happens all the time. A student will present their understanding. If it's not clear, then the teacher will just say, keep working on it. If it is clear, the teacher might say, say it another way. Express it another way. Express it another way. Clarify it. Develop facility. See it in all kinds of live words, in images, in phenomenon. So Zhui Feng says, well, how would you say it? And Zhuangzi says, one by one, each and every person. Some of you remember the koan where Wu Cho is speaking with Manjushri. And, and Wu Cho asks Manjushri, how, how many are there in this community? And Manjushri says, front, three by three, back, three by three. One by one, each and every person. Well, how many is that? How many is that? When everything is released, Adarosh used to ask this, I would say almost during every single introductory retreat. <laughs> he would say, when you let go of everything, completely relinquish attachment to everything, in one moment, in one complete moment, what remains? And then he would say, everything. The only thing that's been relinquished is the attachment in our mind to an idea in my mind of something that I want or that I don't want. Do not miss receiving this gift. Each breath, each day, every interaction, each situation, anywhere we look, it arises in a profound Mutual dependence, codependence. That means we are utterly dependent on each other. If we really knew that, and that we are utterly for everything dependent upon this earth, if we really knew that, what would we do? Unaware of that, we can spend a lifetime just chasing after symptoms, running away from causes, not understanding why things keep happening again and again and again. But when we cultivate our awareness, our natural, bright, clear awareness, we begin to see the truth of impermanence. We begin to see how we are actually responsible for this, for that one sitting on your cushion. And that that responsibility is a gift, because it means you don't have to wait. We can see that our mind has the capacity to breed delusion. We just watch it happening. But also is the ground of our awakening. 
We see that things don't have their own power. You can say something, yeah, it was mean-spirited, but you didn't make me angry. You can't do that to me. You become part of the conditions under which I make myself angry. So yeah, you have a part of it, in it, because we are mutually dependent upon each other. But the anger is mine. And that becomes the very place of our change, of transformation. And then we can bring our attention to everyday things, like Dadaroshi encourages us, the sacred matter of ordinary household activity. And so how do we bring that into practice? We sit, we walk, we stand, we lie down, and we do that cultivating a wakeful mind, an open heart. We practice simple activities to see into this, right? Because those are challenging enough. I mean, just think about you're sitting, your mind is very clear. By the time you're standing and walking, you're distracted and you're 100 miles away. What are you doing? You're just walking. We just see how easy it is for our mind, right, to lose its stability. And so we practice each of those forms of practice, and we practice getting from one to the next, <laughs> right? Establishing a continuous stream. So that then as we emerge further and further and further, we, we're developing that capacity. So that our lives are not isolated and independent. Tadarushi says, it's because of these truths, beyond all dualities, existence and non-existence, right and wrong, heaven and hell, me and you, that there is plowing the field, there is planting the seeds, that we can do this, that all of this comes into being. And as Analeo said, it's not just a linear thing, it's happening in each moment. And so when I say every day we create this monastery anew, that's actually what ha is happening. There are causes, of course. So we have, you know, causes going all the way back beyond Dadaroshi, all the way back to the Buddha, and conditions, right? And all of that is present in today. And that's why today is so important, because today we are creating new causes and establishing new conditions that are today, but they're also conditioning the next moment, the next day. So what we do today is today and tomorrow. And when we understand that, then that brings a whole level of what? You figure it out. Into today. Right? How does that make that meaningful to you, to me? How does it help us to keep our eyes open, to not fall so easily into our habit patterns? And when we do, to just come back. Don't ignore it, but don't add more weight than it needs. That's the gift of practice, is it just keeps happening, right? It can keep happening. One by one, each and every thing. And in that, it is one vast body 
and there's us. And those are not at odds. They work together. You know, practice is what transforms teachings into lived experiences. It's what transforms Buddhist concepts into our intentions, our thoughts, and our speech, and our actions. It's giving it life. That's why, you know, in essence, Buddha Dharma can never be found on a page. It's never in a talk. It's in how that becomes transformed in a body, in a mind, in an action. So I'll end with this. The buildings and the grounds protect the Dharma and bring peace to all. Earth goddesses, sun and moon gods, seasons and time spirits, mountain and river beings, is there anything we are not dependent upon? Is there anything we should not hold in reverence? The song in the Ten Directions grows in wisdom and compassion. So many hands and eyes, so many bodies and minds. Is there anyone who cannot enter? Is there anyone who is not changing the world? How this comes to us is a gift we should not miss. Morning, noon, and night is the mind of Kanzeon, Bodhisattva. Is there a time that is better than now? Is there a person better suited than you? I ask you to give the last line. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.